Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. We're here with another little Black Classics Penguin Collection review. Today is episode 33 of the Reviews Collection, and today we're covering Jane Austen, a true titan of the Western literary canon. The collection that Penguin has included, though, for this is sort of unique. If you've encountered Jane Austen before, as you probably have if you grew up in American schools, or gosh, I imagine if you grew up in England or British schooling, that would probably doubly true. Um... But the collection they've assembled is unique. It was something that I never encountered. And it's essentially her, her juvenilia is what the Wikipedia calls it. It's writings from when she was a teenager. Apparently, as a hobby, she would write stories and so, as sort of entertainment for her family. Something to keep them, I don't know, occupied and entertained. And so that's... And so that's what they've collected for this sort of unique view into her writing and authorship history. I think this is a unique episode just because few other authors we've covered have been so thoroughly canonized as Austin has, but that's a more recent development, apparently, and I learned this through our light Wikipedia-style research for the show, um, but apparently she wasn't you know, deeply respected, uh, kind of was upon release, and then there were ebbs and flows, and women's literature wasn't, or literature by women wasn't respected and certainly wasn't canonized until uh, pretty recently. Um, but few other authors, I think, would everyday people or people just growing up through a school system and then not really thinking about literature much more after that would have encountered other authors than her, I think, on our list so far. We had Nietzsche, who's, I think some of his quotes are common, but I don't know if many people actually read his longer work. There's Walt Whitman, another kind of American school staple in terms of what American literature is and the history of the United States as it is now. He's pretty common. Dante, again, Inferno, those kind of a dense read, and I don't think many high schoolers take it on. And then there's Chaucer. That's a pretty, you know, classic um, U.S. school staple because you can cut up any of the Canterbury Tales into kind of a bite-sized piece, and so he's popular for that reason. We also did Marx, an episode on um, Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, which is a thing that, again, I don't think many people read. They just know a summary of it or sort of like some bullet points. And so, yeah, Austin is probably one of the most recognizable authors we've covered so far. It's pretty exciting. I mean, come on, y'all. She's on the England's $10 pound note now. So you know you've made it when you are on um, when you're on some money. I guess that's the... I think she'd be very pleased with it, considering her aspirations and thoughts on class and wealth and things. I think that would be kind of a, a nice twist for her legacy. You'll have noticed that all the other people I mentioned that were kind of truly canonized are men. This... Um, Collection is definitely skewed for more male authors, which in terms of like Western literature canon reads pretty true because again, it's it's been, you know, maybe the last 70 to 100 years where women writing literature has been a deeply considered thing and not just an afterthought of kind of what we introduce into the classics canon. And so... I hopefully going forward, I haven't really looked ahead too much, but hopefully we can cover some other sort of like really recognizable um, women authors. I'm excited to dig into Jane Austen today, an author I have not revisited probably since college, maybe even since like high school AP class um, when I read Pride and Prejudice. Uh, which I remember, frankly, is kind of a a subtle and, you know, it's got a comical or sort of sat light satire bit. 
on observations about social and economic class and status interactions between those things, you know, the importance of mar- importance of marriage and status. And really, it's it frames it all in at least the novels or I've had exposure to in sort of its effects on women in a society that's, you know, just explicitly patriarchal and its laws are established that way and its structures are that way. And uh, I think for those things, it's she gets a lot of credit duly for sort of, again, subtlety, but also, you know, kind of rich characterization and how these characters kind of combat these systems and come up against them. I learned, again, from some light research, just covering my tracks and making sure I, you know, re-familiarize myself with famous Austin works and the history of her work. Um, She's apparently faced some post-colonial and Marxist scrutiny, which doesn't shock me. I could see how you could read her work as deeply conservative, just in terms of the society it promotes and sort of the the ends that she arrives at in some of the novels and the conclusions that satisfy her characters or don't satisfy them. I mean, some of it is just sort of accepting within a system, within a given, you know, patriarchal system or exploitative system, sort of accepting what freedoms you can achieve and strive for within that, but not, certainly I wouldn't call any of her books revolutionary, uh, for example. And so I could see why those theories would sort of bump up harshly against her work. I've never done an analysis of any of her work through those lenses, so I can't say firsthand, but reading that online didn't shock me. Also, though, that you can't say that without also saying that she's, you know, sort of a feminist icon, a person who found the best ways to get by and find dignity in life in a system, again, designed not to grant you that. And I think, I mean, given those two truths, it, we, we arrive at a, a simple thing, I believe, anyway, which is that probably means she wrote very well and has a, good, has a good literature mind, because if you can have competing and mixed theories with complicated kind of crossing takes, that sounds like rich stuff to me. Sounds like you can really dig into the text and try and evaluate it in a in a deeper way, um, and hopefully an authentic and not like you know straw man kind of way. And so I'm you know was excited to go back and see what Austin had, especially in her young teenage years, which proved kind of doubly fascinating in a way. And we'll get into that in a bit. As you've, if, well, I was going to say, as you know, that's presumptuous. You might not know. Um, if you don't know, I've been using different framing for the recent book reviews for probably the last 10 or 15 or so, just trying to change up the format each time and introduce different things into the podcast. Today, I wanted to look up, because Austin, again, is at least how she was presented to me in my life and sort of is an introduction to me or was an introduction to me to sort of this capital L literature, the, these, you know, super famous authors with dense style and complex themes and all of that, this sort of author you get introduced to in like an AP level or college class where you think, whoa, I've never, you know, had to unpack things to this level or to this degree. Um, because of all that, I figured it would be fun if I tried to find quotes from other authors about her, just because she's such a celebrated author herself. I was curious what others, you know, had to say about her, you know, in criticism or just in passing. And I did come across a helpful piece in it from 2017 from the Irish Times, which is a publication I have zero knowledge about. So if that's in some way not credible, I guess I didn't do my diligence, but it seemed fine. Um, they collected some quotes from authors. I believe they're all Irish authors. When to commemorate, rather, not when she died again, but to commemorate the 200-year anniversary of her passing. And some of the quotes are really insightful and instructive. So I think I'm going to use those quotes uh, and to unpack the collection here that Penguin has. I'll, I'll read some of the writer's quotes and then kind of observe and talk about how they apply or maybe don't apply to the work that Penguin collected. So let's start with the first quote I pulled. 
The first quote, then, that I pulled, and I'm going to butcher this name because I think it's a traditional Irish name. It definitely had a lot of markings um, in the letters that I did not know how to pronounce, so apologies. But it looks like uh, Aylis or Eilis Dubines or Dubines. Um, apologies on butchering that one. It's been a while since I've really, really heinously butchered a name here, so I guess we're back in the thick of it now for our pod. Um, anyway, the quote that that author pulled or said was, Never again did Jane Austen allow herself to parody other genres, to be as stylized and postmodern in her technique, or even to paint such exaggerated portraits of characters. And she was talking about, I believe, a, a North... Um, Northridge Abbey, North Ranger Abbey or something, a book I've never read. But I think that quote is a great introduction to what they've collected, these juvenile works, because it is very playful. It is, I don't know if I'd say postmodern, but it is a bit of parody. It's, you know, the satire she's associated with, um, though often her satire and things like Pride and Prejudice is commended for being very subtle, um, though the first quote of that book is a, you know, a kind of satirical statement. But it's it's blended in with genuine, I would say, romanticism in ways, and so it is, I think, comes across as having it both ways. A lot of the stuff in here is just outright silly or playful, which makes sense given the context that she's wanted to entertain her family and write some kind of fun, maybe frivolous stories. And I think it's best exemplified by the final thing in this collection, which is a fictional, really short two-page letter, just a correspondence from one young woman to her friend. Um, and essentially the premise of it is that the woman is admitting to basically having a complete moral failure of a life, doing heinous things, committing crimes, murdering her whole family. But now that she's getting married, essentially everything is, is fine again and that everything is undone. And this is such a weirdly prescient kind of like Jane Austenism about the effects of marriage and what marriage can or cannot do and how, you know, we maybe treat it in this hyperbolic manner, uh, a very romantic manner. Um, and that's kind of classic Austen in a way. She says, quote, and this is the final quote of the, of the letter I'm going to read. The colonel, in gratitude, waited on me the next day with an offer of his hand. I'm now going to murder my sister, yours ever, Anna Parker, which is just a, you know, such a bizarre little hilarious juxtaposition at the end there. It almost is like she's treating the marriage as a, a sort of peak she ascended to, and now the reward is just to reindulge her, like, heinous crime behavior, you know, murder her sister. And it's just such a comical turn, um, and it, it's exaggerated and hyperbolic in a way that I think some of these other stories are too, and it's um, almost kind of fun to see that in Austen when I think if you had never had an exposure to Jane Austen and then you picked up a novel, you know, just off the shelf, you might think she, again, is a bit conservative in a way or is just sort of portraying a society that's very strict, very formal. And so that can be hard to, it can be a hard shell to crack, I guess. She seems very staid and reserved at times. Um, I think, again, to someone who's new, if you really dig into her work, I think that those things kind of fall apart to an extent. But this is just an outright you know, absurdity on the page direct, you know, it's only two pages. And it's, um, I thought it was pretty funny. And again, it's a good example of what this collection has, and I guess kind of the anarchy of some of her um, younger works and younger writings. And yeah, man, I mean, if the teens can't bring the anarchy, then I don't know who's going to do it. And it makes me sort of happy in a, in a funny kind of twisted way that uh, teenagers, it seems like in any epoch, have been bringing the chaos. Um, so, you know, that's kind of comforting in a way. And let's, yeah, let's continue talking about different topics and sort of 
the the codes and social order that she observes in these uh, stories in the collection. Sally Rooney has a quote in this article that says, Observing the torturously complex social code necessary to maintain patriarchal rule, she mostly found it extremely funny, which it still is. Who can think about men and keep a straight face? Not me and not Jane Austen. Which, if you've read Sally Rooney's novels, which I've mostly enjoyed, is a, it's a very Sally Rooney quote. I think that works perfectly for both an introduction to her and to the Jane Austen. Um, marriage really is at the fore in many of these stories, and so the more mature work that she writes, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and things that are really well-known, they deal with the same things, but of course just on a novel's level, which is meaning with more depth and nuance and everything, and has more time to sort of ruminate in those books. In these ones, the courtship and love, you know, the, the really exaggerative, capital R, romantic love, is, again, I think played mostly for absurdity and laughs, though there are a couple moments where I didn't I didn't quite get the satire of it. It played more sincere to me, which I think, again, going into Austin Blind, that might be a problem some readers have where if they're interpreting everything com- with complete sincerity, it can come off as extremely sort of stiff and almost silly. But again, that would be that would be missing a lot of the satire, which is is in the work. One of the best comic comical turns comes in the first story, which I'm going to look up the title now. Actually, I forgot the title of the first one. And the title is Jack and Alice. Simple title. Uh, in the middle, actually even past halfway, past the middle of that story, there's a paragraph that begins, It may now be proper to return to the hero of this novel, the brother of Alice, of whom I believe I have scarcely ever had occasion to speak. He never did anything worth mentioning. His death happened a short time after Lucy's departure. And this, I think, is as obvious and funny a satire turn as she has in this collection. And gosh, maybe even in her novels, too. I mean, again, those can play up um, to a little bit less of an extreme degree and can make the satire more subtle. In this case, I mean, it's just such a bizarre introduction and injection into the story. Because truly, up until that point, the brother had never come up. And the only reason he's the main character is because he needed to die so she could inherit his wealth, even though he was just an alcoholic waste who never accomplished or attempted anything. And again, that's the kind of satire that'll that'll bonk you over the head a little bit. Um, I remember we covered Jonathan Swift on this podcast. I don't know which episode that was. But I think Swift satires, especially the really famous or infamous one uh, about eating people, it can also be that kind of, um, I was going to say brutal, that's not the right word, but very obvious, and they're not going to present themselves in a way that is subtle. This kind of reads that way to me, that kind of turn in the middle of a story, a kind of absurd structure, completely just derails the novel or the um the narrative as it had existed and i you know again i thought that injection was really funny and it just plays as a little more clear to me you also um to play up on rooney's quote about men being absurd um a claim i can never really argue with i find myself absurd uh, increasingly so every day i think um there's a quote on 18 this uh, male the the really desired male character in the story um the person that alice is trying to court um he has this long speech, almost a tirade, really, about how amazing he is. And I only pulled one quote from it, but it's like three paragraphs long. He says, partiality aside, I'm certainly more accomplished in every language, every science, every art, and everything than any other person in Europe. My temper is even. My virtue, my virtues innumerable. Myself unparalleled. Which, if you have to go from a quote saying you're the greatest person in a continent to then saying my temper is even... 
is just incredible. It is a, a tremendous display of temperament. Uh, yes, obviously quite even, even and pretty jacked up, it seems. Uh, and I think he just comes off as this sort of brash, absurd character. As far as I remember in that narrative, though, again, I'm trying not to spoil on too much on these reviews, but um, I don't think the characters dislike him any less um, after that. That's just sort of looked upon as like an honorable and honest moment for him, which is funny in and of itself. But yeah, I don't think you could read that and take him too seriously, especially as a modern reader. And so part of the fun of reading these is sort of laughing at characters like that and their and their self-grandeur. So thanks, Rooney, for your quote. And if you haven't read her novels, you probably should. Conversation with, with Friends, and I forget the other one. Um, she's got a great ear for dialogue, for sure. I... I thought the books were, you know, in terms of, I don't know, I guess you'd say plotting, like, you know, modest, they're fine. Um, but this put this mini review in my big review. Yeah, I, I like Sally Rooney. I think she's very um, thoughtful and really has a sharp, young, kind of conversational dialogue ear. Really good, interesting writer there. Anyway, let's move on to a couple more quotes from other writers. This one comes from John Boyne, who I, I don't know, but here's his quote. After several hundred pages of behaving like a level-headed old spinster, and despite being only 19 years old, Eleanor runs screaming from the room in a maelstrom of tears and emotion, finally giving in to her heart. It's touching, funny, and allows the novel to end in Austen's preferred way with the marriage, uh, which I believe, again, having not read all of her novels, that certainly seems true. And I think that quote um, is emblematic, and I don't even know what by the way, what novel that character's from Eleanor, maybe Sense and Sensibility, but at any rate, the passions that he's talking about there, getting unbridled and being unchecked at times, and I think even in a comic way, uh, definitely present throughout this collection. It's something that especially um, Austin, when she writes these fake correspondence letters, she plays up a lot. It's just the the drama and the sentence-to-sentence um, absurdities and hyperbole is just tuned up all the way. Um, I pulled a couple quotes here. In one of the letters, it reads, There is a pattern for a love letter, Matilda. Did you ever read such a masterpiece of writing? Such sense, such sentiment, such purity of thought, such flow of language, and such unfeigned love in one sheet? No, never can I answer it, since a Musgrove is not to be with by every girl. And Musgrove is her love interest. And that, that list is a very Jane Austen list of, of the things that literature should contend with, right? Sense, sentiment, purity of thought, language flow. So in kind of a perfect way, it encapsulates what her own work would come to embody and represent. And yeah, I think that sort of unrestrained, you know, let's let this list run on and on um, sort of romance is what these characters are often caught up in. There is, though, one story I'd point out that uh, I thought was the most intriguing because it was a, I think they called it a 16-part novel is what she labeled it as, but the, the 16 parts are like half paragraphs. It's very brief. And I think what you'll, if you're going to go into Austin and become exhausted, it might be by the lack of brevity in both the prose style and just the stories. And, you know, it's a society that is structured differently and paces very differently too in a story than what we're accustomed to. Um, but there's this story is so brief and has such kind of snippets. They're almost like vignettes. And I thought they were very fun. And they also represent a passion that isn't romantic, but is just sort of about causing chaos and having sort of silly young fun. There's a quote on 34 from that story that says, she then proceeded, the main character, 
to a pastry cook's, where she devoured six ices, refused to pay for them, knocked down the pastry cook, and walked away. And the rest of the tale is basically snippets of chaos like that, of her just, you know, rampaging about town, not paying people, doing absurd and illegal things, and then just kind of returning home. Um, That one I think you should look up. Let me get the title of that, too. I'll look it up quick. Oh, and it is the title. Um, the titular story of the collection too, the beautiful Cassandra and beautiful is misspelled, which they've included. I thought that was a nice touch. This collection actually includes a lot of the misspellings. Um, there aren't too many actually, but there's a couple in there that are pretty funny. And so, yeah, it's the beautiful Cassandra. I can see why they chose that one as the titular story. It probably was the most fun. It's the one that you could read in probably under five minutes. Definitely go look that one up after this is done if you're interested in these at all, because it's humorous. It it hits a lot of her stylistic notes and includes mostly like outright satire and comedy in a way that the other ones sometimes don't. I'm going to end with a quote by uh, Rose Servitova, another author I'm unfamiliar with, but I enjoyed this quote a lot. It's a little bit longer, but I'll read it in full here. She says, I love Austin because she touches on tolerance and forbearance with humor. It is ironic that she, who was restricted to drawing rooms and occasional balls, and I, who have traveled the world, both reached the same conclusion, namely that oddballs are everywhere and that a good sense of humor goes a long way in dealing with them. This is both kind of what this work does well, but then also I think what holds Austin back in some modern readers' eyes, including maybe to extent my own. Austin's definition of oddball and the the cultural and social restrictions that, you know, contain such an oddball person just feel more restrained and maybe a little bit, again, more boring and staid to a modern reader. Some people just have no interest in the in the strict, rigid society she grew up in. And so when you have a character sort of bucking those systems or trying to dismantle them, even that's not really that interesting to encounter. Again, to, to some readers, some people find the subtlety of that. Uh, interesting, and some people just want to be reemerged or um, not reemerged, reimmersed into a society utterly foreign to them, and you know that's why historical fiction is so popular. And I get that, um, but I think in this collection too, there are some oddball characters. I think some of them could do with some harsher treatment by the narrative, uh, in, to say like you know the the murderous sister. Again, I think that reads as a very satirical kind of funny thing, but. This is what you get when you have a little short little snippet story like that instead of a novel. There's not really time for exploration or at least not too much of it. Though, again, I think one of the interesting things about the this collection is the preview it offers in terms of the humor, the thematic components, the characterization even, sort of the, the subtle presentation of that. And so I think even though her later work becomes more matured, and like less, it doesn't rely on twists or genre goofiness as much or postmodernism, if you want to phrase it that way. I think that this is actually kind of a weirdly nice introduction to her work um, and oddball characters having and having humor about them. There's one um, sort of villainous. Uh, countess character in these stories who just constantly abuses this younger character miss maria and i think she could have done for example with some harsher treatment and you know as an oddball sort of villain poking prodding character probably could have used some sort of um i don't know criticism or blowback but she is presented in constant you know ironic sort of contradiction and using circular logic and so she is an absurd character even as it is presented within the narrative she says 
uh, she demands that this Miss Maria um, character come outside, and then she says, But you are used to being blown about by the wind, Miss Maria, and that is what has made your complexion so ruddy and coarse. I would not have my girls stand out of doors as you do in such a day as this. Of course, the irony being that she's the one demanding, and so that just shows how little she thinks of Miss Maria and her own kind of twisted, selfish mind. And, you know, that character doesn't really get much harsh treatment, but the things she says are absurd and played for laughs and sort of, again, ironic. And I think in that way, you know, this collection is an accomplishment of that quote in that the oddball characters have this sort of treatment that is at times respectful, at times comedic, at times, you know, critical of them. And, yeah, it's it's sort of a nice summation or a nice rather introduction to what Austin is and what she can do in the best moments in her writing. As we do at the end of every episode, I will now rank this collection. I think it's a two, and on our scale, two is just a qualified recommendation. A one would mean don't read it at all, it's a pass. A three would mean definitely read it without reservation. I was really hoping, I'll admit, to give this a three, just because I know, like, week to week, it's, of course, uninteresting if I give everything two, you know, that's like the the coward's way out, so to speak. It's the middle ground. But I think it would also be dishonest if most of these weren't twos, because I think, as with most people's responses to literature, especially classics, you know, you can find some, some humor, joy, and insight in it, but also you do have to trudge through some things to usually get there. And so I'm not going to be shocked if by the end of this 80 review series most of them are twos that's in fact kind of by design we're trying to really isolate those like threes and kind of pull them out from the rest from the pack and i think this was close to being a three again i kind of went in thinking gosh that'd be nice i'd like to recommend this and have a three and hopefully i'll be blown away and i think there were moments that did i think that the title story the beautiful cassandra if it were like that more more playful maybe a little less intense with the um just sort of long-winded sentence-to-sentence like syntax flow that it was so indicative of the era that she wrote in. I think if that somehow got toned down a bit and just became more um, readable while also keeping the fun twist, the irony, the comedy, all of that, then yeah, it would be. But the first story really dragged the Allison Henry. It also had some some twists in it that didn't play as humorously as I think they were intended. The, the letter correspondence in the back half is was entertaining, but, you know, it's just a little snippets and not the most... I don't know, not the most thought-provoking stuff. It's good for a chuckle. And there was another story in the middle I didn't talk about at all, which was, again, inner, has these sort of interludes of comedy and was kind of fun. It almost felt fairy tale esque or like she was twisting some classic fairy tales like Rapunzel. But I think your mileage will vary because it is also, you know, interlaced with the same style she's, a com- uh, you know, sort of associated with and with the themes and the ideas and all of that. So I think if you've never read Jane Austen, I mean, you just should. It's important to try and grapple with any sort of legendary artist in the canon, in my mind, at least once. You know, if, it doesn't res- if you don't respond to it, that's also fine. But give it a shot. These, if you were going to introduce yourself to her this way, it would be a very odd introduction, but again, weirdly fitting. Hopefully I've made that clear and gave some examples why. Um, but if you're like a Jane Austen fan, I would say definitely go for these then. It's probably a three for you, everyone else a two, just because if you're so invested in her and her work, this I think will amuse you greatly, especially the extent to which you can see the groundwork she was laying already for her you know, later, more famous and more respected work and novels and such. And I think that'll 
do it for our Jane Austen episode here on the beautiful Cassandra. Thanks so much for listening. It's a pleasure to have you, as ever, for these book reviews. Hopefully we're giving you some ideas of what to read in the new year, or just some recommendations that you can take to others, or, you know, maybe some friends or family or something. Next week, we've got uh, three short stories by uh, Anton Chekhov, which I've heard the allusion to his gun about a billion times, but I've never read any of his short stories. Penguin is calling him a perfect short story writer. He's perfected the short story, so that's high praise already. I haven't read these at all yet, but we'll be back with a book review of that next week, and until such time, we will see you between the classics. (laughs) 